Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Aaron Sullivan, author of The Disaffected. Aaron Sullivan, author of The Disaffected, Britain's Occupation of Philadelphia During the American Revolution. If you were to walk down Market Street in Philadelphia during the British occupation, what would it have looked like? Um, well, in some ways, uh, it'd be similar to today. The layout of Philadelphia is, uh, is really remarkably the same for, for the big cities um, along the coast here. We've kept the same grid pattern. Many of the streets have the same name. Some of the same buildings are obviously still there. Um, in other ways, it would be it would be very different. Of course, uh, it becomes a wartime city. Uh, you have British troops marching back and forth. You have people who are very uncertain about where they're standing. You know, you go down Market Street today. Uh, there are lots of American flags everywhere. Uh, people are very excited about the revolution. Um, during the British occupation, people were uh, more fearful than excited. Really, whichever side they were on, it was a time of great uncertainty, and people were trying to to work their way through that. What was life like for an ordinary person trying to go out about their life? Um, so if you were inside the occupied city, um, your life was um, one where you were under more or less constant surveillance by the British who were there, um, but also very confined. You know, Philadelphia was uh, the largest port city in America at the time. It thrived on commerce, uh, bringing in produce and from the countryside and sending it out to the British Empire. All that's cut off during the occupation, George Washington sieges the city. Um, so you're, you're really confined. If you uh, relied on contacts outside the British lines, they were hard to get to. If you relied on rent outside the British lines, they were difficult to get to. Was there much freedom of movement? Officially, no. <laughs> both, uh, both the British and Washington outside the city of Valley Forge um, wanted to control anybody who could move back and forth across the lines. Um, in practice, if you were fast and slightly stealthy, uh, that barrier was pretty permeable, especially on the American side. Um, Washington desperately wanted to starve the British out during the occupation, so to control all of the countryside and stop people from bringing food to the British. Um, the British wanted that food and were willing to, to pay for it. So you had uh, a number of people who were, um, if not loyalist, then disaffected who were not attached to the American cause, so at least not well enough to lose money over it, um, who were going to make that run into the city with provisions to sell to the British or to sell to hungry people in the city. They were willing to risk getting caught to do that. Uh, and Washington never succeeded in really stopping that flow of traffic, although he tried and he threatened a lot. So if you, if you smuggled goods into the uh, occupied city and sold it to the British, what would they have given you in exchange for it? What was the money? Um, so it were, gold and silver were really what you wanted most of all. Um, if you couldn't get gold and silver, you could get a, a bill of exchange that would be worth gold and silver back in, in England, and you could give that to some other merchant. Uh, what you wanted to avoid was paper money, especially continental paper money, which was just plummeting in value. Um, or really your worst case scenario would be that you get a ticket from the army, usually the continental army, promising to pay you 
at some point in the future. Um, and the Continental Army was very bad about actually paying those debts. Um, and at some points, the, uh, the tickets you would get would not really specify who was going to pay you or when or, or how that worked. You just had to, to hope that someone would honor that debt eventually. So if, if you weren't strongly attached to the revolution, taking your food to the British seemed like a better deal. How many soldiers were actually here in Philadelphia, British soldiers? Uh, it changed over time. Um, uh, at the peak, uh, probably like 15,000, mm. including British, Hessian, Loyalist troops all, all together there. Um, but again, that changed up and down as troops came from New York or were sent out elsewhere. Who was the boss? A General William Howe for most of the occupation. Um, he was uh, put in charge. Um, he fought in New York, um, beat Washington pretty badly up there for a while. Uh, and then he was in charge uh, of taking Philadelphia itself. He retired secretly in the middle of the occupation. Uh, he had lost faith in Britain's um, ability to win the war, effectively. He didn't feel Britain was committed enough to the cause. He felt the ministry was not going to support him and what he had to do to win this war. Uh, so he retired. Um, his retirement was accepted near the end of the occupation. Sir Henry Clinton was then put in charge of the very, very end of the occupation before the withdrawal, which uh, was not a great deal for him. Uh, he had wanted this job for quite a long time to be the man in the British Army in uh, America, but to receive that position just as the army is about to surrender the largest city in America uh, was, not, was not how he dreamed of taking on that position. Why did they want to capture Philadelphia in the first place? Well, Philadelphia was <coughs> the de facto capital of America. It's where the Continental Congress sat, where independence began. Um, and certainly in a European war, then that would have been it. If you take the capital, you usually win the war. Um, that, of course, wasn't the case in the American Revolution. Uh, so there was something very symbolic about taking Philadelphia. Howe himself uh, believed that if he pursued Philadelphia, Washington would take a stand to stop him. Um, Howe believed that the best way to win this war was to crush Washington's army permanently. And he failed to do that in New York. He failed to do that um, at Brandywine as well. But he thought, if he can attack Philadelphia, this is something Washington will have to stand and defend, even if it risks the entire destruction of his army. Did, they, did the British reach, meet resistance when they moved into the city? Into the city itself? Yeah, I mean, where did Washington's army go? Um, so the British came up through the Chesapeake and landed at Head of Elk in Maryland, and then marched overland toward Philadelphia. And they had one major battle at Brandywine Creek. Uh, that's where Washington did, as Howe predicted, draw a line and say, this is where we stand to defend the capital. Um, Howe ends up outflanking Washington at Brandywine and comes close to destroying the army, but it doesn't quite work out. Washington manages to fall back. Um, and that's really the only major encounter that they have where the two armies are at full strength facing each other. Um, Howe will outflank Washington on the way to the city from there. And when he marches into the city itself, he uh, meets a, a mixed welcome. Some people are very excited. Some people are, are very quiet. <laughs> um, he'll, he'll face Washington again at uh, Germantown. Uh, Washington will try to retake the city in the Battle of Germantown. That will not work out for him. And Howe will keep it, and it will be relatively quiet after that. What was the city like when Howe marched in? Uh, much smaller <laughs> than it is today. A lot of people left? Um, something like a third of the population leaves initially, so Philadelphia goes from 
around 30,000 people to around 10,000 people um, by the time Howe gets there. Uh, so these are people who are um, outspoken revolutionaries who know they're going to suffer for it if they're caught by the British. Uh, and a number of people who are simply scared of armies. There's um, this great sense that living in the midst of an army is not a safe thing to do. Uh, so about a third of the population leaves. Many of those people come back as the months sort of roll along and Philadelphia isn't burned to the ground and Washington can't retake it. Um, but initially, about 10,000 people evacuate the city, wait and see what happens. Were there a lot of loyalists in Philadelphia? Not nearly as many as how wished there were. <laughs> mm. um, there had been uh, a great hope uh, by the British that Philadelphia would be this bastion of loyalist sentiment. Uh, loyalist figureheads like um, Joseph Galloway, I guess most notably, come from Philadelphia and they speak with Howe in New York and say, Pennsylvania is ripe for rising up and supporting the king. Um, and if you can just get the army there, if you can just push Washington back, you'll get thousands of loyalists who will take up arms and support, support the royal cause. And this is what Howe wanted. He said, I'm going to take Philadelphia, we'll crush Washington's army, I'll get all of this loyalist support from the presumed loyalists of Pennsylvania. Uh, and they can hold the city while I march off and conquer the rest of America. That doesn't happen. Howe is constantly disappointed by the uh, support he gets. He, um, he uh, orders uniforms and equipment for 5,000 loyalist troops that he thinks, you know, we're going to get the uniforms, we're going to put them in the uniforms, it's going to be great. Uh, and he cannot even raise 1,000 from Pennsylvania. He's offering land bounties and money, and he just cannot get people to swear allegiance to the king and pick up a gun and fight for him. I want to read some of it because the, uh, the, the beginning of your book is really about Philadelphia before the British arrived and, yes. <clears throat> and the, the political atmosphere there. And you say Pennsylvania was one of the last colonies con to condone a formal separation from Great Britain, prompting one impatient Philadelphia patriot to complain that there is more opposition to independence in this province than in all of the continent beside. Why was Pennsylvania lagging so far behind the rest of the colonies in wanting independence? Uh, so, a number of reasons. Uh, Pennsylvania uh, was a very fractured state. So you have a number of different people uh, with different political views, different um, ethnicities, uh, different languages, different religions who are all living together here. You know, this uh, comes from uh, William Penn's vision of we can bring all these people together under one government and they can live peacefully side by side, uh, which, which worked in some ways and didn't in others. But it leads to all of these different perspectives in one state. Um, and the truth was it was hard to get them to all do anything at the same time. Uh, so the revolutionaries discover it's hard to get them all to support independence. You know, this is a, a dangerous thing to do. It's also a, a colony full of pacifists, people who don't believe in taking up arms and bloodshed for the, the sake of a political cause. And they're going to resist anything that will, they know will lead to war with Great Britain. Uh, Philadelphia itself is this enormous market that feeds the British Empire. Uh, it sends, I think there's more grain going out of Philadelphia than anywhere else in America. At the time, much of that goes to other parts of the empire and the Caribbean. So people are strongly invested in not precipitating a war if they can avoid it. Uh, so there are lots of reasons that they are very hesitant to, to sign on to independence and therefore war with Britain. Is that why, I mean, when you compare like Boston being the hotbed of the revolution and Pennsylvania, Philadelphia not being, is that, is that what was different about Boston? Uh, well, Boston is in New England. They're much more united up there in their, in their perspective. Um, Boston had also lived through much more 
than Philadelphia had. Boston had been, um, been occupied much sooner than Philadelphia. They had suffered the Boston Massacre. Uh, Massachusetts had the battles of Lexington and Concord. This is where bloodshed happened on their doorstep. Uh, Philadelphia had been free of British troops for a long time and lived pretty peacefully uh, while things in New England were, were falling apart. How was Pennsylvania governed as all this was unfolding? Badly <laughs> is, the, <laughs> is the short answer. Um, as things moved toward independence, the uh, colonial uh, government of Pennsylvania was steadily losing power. It had been dominated by Quakers and the counties in southeast Pennsylvania, those around Philadelphia, um, for a long time. Um, and, and it's true that uh, those counties exercised much more power than their populations should have warranted. Um, but as we move toward revolution, uh, the, the back counties are, are agitating for more representation. Uh, the um, patriots coming from outside the colony, especially John Adams, recognizes that those are the counties where support for the revolution will be. Um, so there's this constant pressure to change representation in the colonial assembly. Um, and as a result, the colonial assembly will eventually fall apart and a new government will take over, one created almost completely by the radicals. Um, so there's a new government, it's an ambitious government, it becomes the most democratic government in America at the time, but it's a government with a very weak grip on power. Well, I want to ask you about that, because the, <clears throat> the, the colonial assembly that fell apart was democratically elected? Uh, democratically, it's probably a strong way of putting it, but <laughs> it was elected by the people, yeah. How was it overthrown? How was it dissolved? Uh, people stopped listening to them, effectively. It was just like a revolution? <laughs> of, a, of a sort. Um, so John Adams, um, and, and some others, but he was the, probably the biggest name attached to this, um, realized he was not going to be able to convince the uh, representatives of the colonial assembly to support independence. And they were pretty staunchly um, opposed to it. And they would tell the uh, representatives to the Continental Congress, you cannot vote for independence from Britain. Strict orders do not support independence. Um, so Adams eventually decided, well, we've got to change the government in Pennsylvania. Um, so he, uh, he managed to, um, to pass a motion in Congress which effectively says Pennsylvania doesn't have a government suitable to the situation. It needs a new government. Um, and so they begin creating a new one. They don't ask the old colonial government to sign off on this. They just uh, create a convention to make a new constitution. They overthrew the government. Yeah, they overthrew the government. Without, without violence in this case. But they create a new government that more people will listen to. Now, some of the things that happened in Philadelphia sound <clears throat> like you talk about um, there's a committee on tarring and feathering <laughs> and there's a, a supreme um, executive committee and uh, things like that that sound like, uh, oh, there's a, so trials by people who are enemies of liberty to America. It sounds sort of like George Orwell type stuff. It gets, it gets very dark. Um, 1777 is probably the, the darkest point. Um, and I would say it, it begins to lean in the direction that we'll see revolutions take in the French Revolution a couple decades later. Um, and the, the door opens for those sort of bloody reprisals. Uh, so the Council of Safety in 1777 uh, is this executive committee created by the government in an emergency situation. They're going to be invaded by, by Britain. Um, where you have a, a group of, of people who have the authority to arrest you to fine you, to imprison you, and to summarily execute you without trial if, and this is a quote, if your general conduct or conversation may be deemed inimical to the cause. This is people, pro-independence people who are doing this. Yes. Um, 
And thankfully, they don't use those powers very much. And the Council of Safety in 77 only lasts about six months before it's dissolved. But you can see the door open there. You can see how they're thinking. Um, we don't know what limits we actually want to put on this new government. Who was heading the new government? Um, political, Were there it was, individuals who, who were like the leaders of it, the ringleaders? Yeah, so um, in some ways, Pennsylvania's government is extremely democratic. There is no governor. There is no single powerful executive. Uh, there's an executive council. Um, Joseph Reed is a powerful figure in there that some people have heard of. Uh, but the really important thing about them is they are elected almost solely by the most radical elements of the revolution in Pennsylvania. Um, in some ways, that's because the more moderate conservative elements don't recognize this new government. Um, and in some ways, it's designed that way. Uh, there are a number of oaths that are implemented. You can't vote without taking these oaths. You can't hold office without taking these oaths. Um, some of them are just very explicit. You must support the independent uh, state government, or you must support the existing constitution if you want to hold office. Some are religious oaths that are aimed directly at Quakers, who they know are going to be more conservative and more moderate. I want to read you that. You say in June 1776, the provincial conference uh, created to outline plans for a state constitutional convention went on to stun all but the most avid advocates of revolution by declaring that all delegates to the upcoming convention would have to submit to a religious test, a requirement almost unprecedented in Pennsylvania and fundamentally antithetical to the colony's long history of religious freedom. That was to keep the Quakers out? Yes. Yeah, Pennsylvania, I mean, its history is this is a place of religious toleration uh, following uh, the Quaker model. Um, but as radicals want to take control, want to push Pennsylvania into the revolutionary camp, they recognize the Quakers are, are going to be an obstacle there. So they create a religious test, um, which among other things involve recognizing a Trinitarian God and the authority of Scripture, things Quakers at the time are very uncomfortable doing. And they say, if you cannot take this test, you cannot vote. And a number of Quakers say, well, then we can't vote. You write about a uh, Henry Drinker? Yes. And his, his and his wife's story kind of is a thread it's through. How did you find him, and what is so special about him and his wife? Um, well, Elizabeth Drinker uh, <clears throat> kept a diary through uh, most of her adult life. It's this wonderful source for all sorts of things, 18th and early 19th century. Um, so she's very well known, and I had read her diary before most people studying the period had. Um, Henry, her husband, um, is arrested in 1777 by the revolutionaries and end up, ends up banished to Virginia without trial, as he is suspected of being inimical. Um, and so I thought, well, that's an interesting story to pursue. So I began looking more into Elizabeth and Henry's uh, backstory and what sources existed on, on them. I found a collection of letters at uh, Haverford uh, that they write back and forth to each other during his exile, so while he's been carried off to Virginia and the British are in charge of Pennsylvania. Um, and really, they're just, they're just wonderful letters. <laughs> this, uh, um, they're emotional. They're very real. Um, as they try to deal with the situation they're in, where she's living without her husband in a military-occupied city in the middle of a war zone, and he is a prisoner in another state. Um, and it's, it's so compelling. I really wanted to follow that and keep them in the book as this sort of constant thread as their story unwinds as the occupation moves along. But that means that somebody could be sitting in occupied Philadelphia and write a letter and put a stamp on it, and it would be delivered to someone who was a prisoner in Virginia? In uh, well, it's not so much putting a stamp on it as finding someone who will take it there. Mm, mm. Um, so the armies allowed some correspondence to go back and forth. 
Uh, but, and the drinkers are clear about this in their letters. They know everything they write is going to be opened multiple times. The British will open it on its way out of the city. Washington's Continentals will open it when it crosses the lines. Uh, the people guarding the prisoners in Virginia will open it again before they give it over to the prisoners. Um, so everything is very censored. It's clear some of the letters disappear. They never reach their destination. I suspect in some cases someone decided they said something they shouldn't and, and tossed it. Um, so they are, they are very careful. Henry, uh, at one point, um, it's clear that he doesn't want to hear anything about the war. No politics, nothing about the war, no real current events other than things related to the family. He doesn't want to get Elizabeth in trouble, and he knows that information will never reach him. And what anyway. was he arrested for? Um, for uh, being suspected of being inimical to the cause, not sufficiently supporting the Americans. He uh, is never officially charged. Right, so there's no crime that's actually aimed at him. He is just effectively suspicious. Was he a loyalist? Uh, not in any meaningful sense of the word. I mean, he does nothing to help the British cause at any point. Um, he's not an outspoken advocate of the British cause at any point. Uh, he is just also not an outspoken advocate of the American cause and of independence. He's a pacifist, so he will not join the militia, which becomes mandatory at one point in Pennsylvania. He won't pay fines for not joining the militia because he sees those fines as supporting the war effort, which, as a pacifist, he can't do. Um, he is somewhat tainted by his association uh, with the Tea Act. Um, he was going to be one of the people selling tea in Philadelphia um, after Britain passed the Tea Act. He ran into lots of resistance and at one point finally said, you know what, the people uh, oppose this. I'm not going to go against them. I resign. So he never actually tries to sell tea, but his name is remembered after that, and that may be why he's targeted. Was he prominent in some way? Because it seemed like the, the, the patriots went to a lot of trouble to arrest him and hold him, and then when the British took Philadelphia to, to take him with him. Um, so he was wealthy. I mean, he's a wealthy, successful merchant. Um, so in, in, to that extent, then yes, he's, you know, his voice is, is heated because he has money and he has influence and he has connections to the rest of the empire. Um, he's not a political leader in any sense, and he's one of uh, ultimately about 20 people who get sent all the way down to Virginia. Um, and, and the Patriots really don't know what to do with him once they've arrested him, so they've taken him into custody. They're not going to give him a trial or officially charge him. They know that will never work. They don't have a crime that he's committed. Um, they are concerned if the British take the city, how is he going to respond? Now that he's been sort of unlawfully arrested, will he help the British while they're here? Um, better not chance it. They move him out before the British come, and then they have to decide what to do with him. Another character who, who weaves his way through your book is James Allen. Yes. Who is he? Uh, he's a member of the Allen family, which is, um, is prominent and influential in colonial Pennsylvania, especially his father, William Allen Sr. Is that who Allentown is named after? Yes. Um, so uh, <clears throat> uh, Allen is initially uh, very supportive of the Patriot cause. Um, he uh, is a leader of the Stamp Act protests. He says, Britain can't do this. This is, let's take to the streets. Um, he joins the militia. He's perfectly uh, comfortable with the idea of using violence to defend the constitutional rights um, of Americans. Uh, but for him, they are British constitutional rights. He sees the king as infringing upon the rights of British subjects. Um, he goes from being a patriot to effectively being a member of the disaffected in 76 once independence is declared. Um, for James Allen, uh, the movement toward independence is sort of a step off the path 
He had this path of resistance. This is how we show the king we cannot be stepped on as subjects. And independence is something else altogether. This is taking the movement in a different, darker direction. He does not trust the people who are in charge of Congress or the new Pennsylvania government. Um, and he withdraws. He goes to uh, his home, uh, Trout Hall, and says, I'm just going to live here. That's We're in Allentown? Gonna, yeah. Mm -hmm. We're not going to talk about politics. I'm not going to get involved. I'm just going to sit this thing out. How'd that work out for him? Not so well. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, the disaffected are not treated well by the revolutionary leadership. And there are a number of reasons for that. Um, but he is uh, sort of constantly harassed. He wakes up one morning to find his home surrounded by militiamen with bayonets fixed who are there to arrest him, to drag him in for questioning. Um, he also, there's no crime he can be charged with. He is sent back home, but effectively is under home arrest. Uh, his family is harassed. His uh, wife and daughter are in a carriage. When it's confronted by the militia, it's turned upside down. They're screaming. It's, it's a horrible moment. Um, and he has uh, lots of things confiscated. Um, they really don't forgive him for leaving the militia, for leaving the movement. Um, he will eventually move into the occupied city. His wife has a child. His brother in the city dies. He realizes, you know, I should be in the city with my family. Uh, he has permission from George Washington himself to do this, to cross lines to join his family in the city. Uh, he is nonetheless um, accused of high treason for it by the government. So it's a, it's a hard life for him there. When you use the term disaffected, first of all, did, did you come up with that term or was no. it used at the time? <laughs> what does it mean? Um, so it's a term used at, used at the time, uh, but for a variety of different uses. Um, for me, I, th I think the best definition is really there in the word itself. It's, it's disaffected. It's a lack of political affection for either side, either the British Empire or the vision of revolution represented by the revolutionaries. So it's a, it's a negative term, a passive term. If you are a revolutionary, you are actively supporting the revolution. If you're a loyalist, that would imply you are actively supporting the King George and the British Empire. Uh, the disaffected, though, are people... Um, who aren't in either of those, those camps. Um, usually when I talk about this, I like to make an analogy to a, a more recent uh, conflict in America that, that helps explain it. Um, so we go back to 2016, and we have this fight in America uh, over the future of the nation in a presidential election, right? And so you know, some people are going to vote for the Republican, and some people are going to vote for the Democrat. And after it's all over, we spend a lot of time talking about, well, demographically, who voted on this side, and who voted on this side, and who crossed over unexpectedly from one side to the other. Uh, what we talk much less about is the fact that a plurality of Americans, the largest single group of eligible voters, did not vote for either of those candidates. They sat out the presidential election. And so we look at those people, and we can kind of get a sense, uh, however imperfectly, of what the disaffected in the revolution um, we're like, you know, there's, there's no one third-party candidate that would have united those people. And there's no one vision of America that would have united the disaffected. They are united by their rejection of both of the options that were really offered them. Um, in the same way, uh, if we want to explain the election of 2016 and what happened, you've got to recognize that plurality of Americans that didn't pick a side that could have shifted the election either way. If you want to get a sense of what it was like to live through that election, you have to have the perspective of people who said, I hate both these people so much, I'm not going to vote for them. When we go back to the revolution, you can't explain what happened without recognizing there were these people in the middle who said, I don't want to support a side. I'm not going to risk my life and my family to support either of these visions. You can't explain what it was like to live through the revolution 
without seeing it through their eyes too. And in part, that's what the book does, is try to let's draw attention to these people and their experiences. So it was more than just Quakers? Oh yes. Now the Quakers are, are the easiest to see and really the easiest to write about because they are very upfront about it. This is a matter of principle for them. The, we do not get involved in this sort of conflict. Um, but then you have a lot of people for whom this is a pragmatic issue. You know, they're not going to take a principled stand for this. They do not want the attention of either side. They just want to be left alone. They have a family to take care of. They have an 18th century farm to run, which is you know, a great deal of work. They just want to be left alone. Um, and so, to some extent, they will go along with the flow of whoever is in charge, whoever is most likely to persecute them. But at a moment of transition, when there is no side which is really in charge on the ground, uh, that's when you can see these people begin to step back and say, you know what, if no one's going to find me or arrest me or persecute me for not joining their side, I'm going home. I'm going to go back to my farm and just sit this thing out. So the occupation then becomes this important moment for finding those people. Because you think about occupied Philadelphia, in 75, Philadelphia is the capital of a British colony in America. In 76, it becomes the capital of the United States of America, effectively. In 77, it becomes the headquarters of the British Army in America, fighting a war against the US. And then in 78, it again becomes the capital of the United States. And each of those transitions is this moment where someone loses power and someone hasn't quite taken it back. And you can see these people say, you know, I'm, I'm sitting this thing out if I possibly can, and recognize how many of them in Pennsylvania did not want to be involved if they didn't have to. When the British Army marched in, did they treat the disaffected as harshly as the, the hardcore revolutionaries treated them? No. Um, there's, a, there's a stark difference in how the British approached issues of loyalty. The uh, revolutionaries cared very much about allegiance and sort of outspoken um, displays of, of consent for what they were doing, which makes sense. They're trying to overthrow an existing government. They need people to show that this is a movement that has the support of the population. Um, so they draw this hard line and say, if you're not with us, you are against us, and hence they tend to persecute the disaffected. The British are in a very different situation, right? This is, this is a kingdom. The king does not really need your consent in the same way to exercise authority over you. You are subjects, not citizens. Uh, Britain has much more power in terms of uh, both military manpower and wealth to use there. Um, less concerned about the support of the people. Um, so they care relatively little about your expressed loyalty. If you are not actively trying to stop them, that's fine. You know, if you want to join them, that's even better. But as long as you keep your head down and are quiet, they aren't really inclined to persecute you for that. Uh, for the loyalists, this becomes a problem. They expect the British to come in and really reward them for loyalism, protect them, uh, support their money, um, reward them for, for the support they've given so far. Whereas the British are, you know, we, we don't really care. As long as you're not in our way, you know, we're fine with that. So when the British are burning down what they think will be sniper nests up in Germantown, they just burn the houses they think are a threat. They don't really stop and say, is this the house of a loyalist or a revolutionary? They just think it's in a position where a revolutionary sniper could be in there. So we burn it down. The loyalists are horrified by this.
Now, you do say in here, the, the army took few, if any, steps to shield the city's inhabitants from the more gruesome aspects of military justice. A public place of execu execution was established in the courtyard behind the State House, Independence Hall, in the very center of the city, but floggings and hangings could be witnessed in various places. So it was not entirely a benign uh, occupation. No, it's a, I mean, it's a military occupation by the 18th century British military, and um, they were by the, the standards of the time, and certainly by the standards of now, sort of a harsh, gruesome um, institution. Floggings was how they punished people, which is you know, a bloody, terrifying thing to watch. Um, and they were not afraid to use that to try to keep people in line, both their own soldiers and the civilians. So if you lived in the midst of that occupation, you lived constantly seeing those sort of punishments inflicted upon the soldiers. Did the British have much of a job rooting out um, supporters of the revolution? I mean, did people stay behind? Was, did some of the, uh, the pro-revolution people go underground when the British came in, or did they kind of all clear out? Um, there were some. <clears throat> Washington had a spy network that reported um, out of Philadelphia. I don't write much about it. Um, but he was certainly receiving information from spies within the city. Um, there was no real fifth column for the British to worry about within the city. No, no chance that there was going to be an uprising under their feet, as it were, of, re of revolutionaries. Um, most of those sorts of people, and again, Pennsylvania did not have as many of those sorts of people as Washington had hoped and thought, um, had left before the British came and did not try to come back. Did you read, in doing this book, uh, a lot of newspapers that were published during the occupation? Yes. <laughs> well, what do they read like? Um, well, like most newspapers at the time, they are mostly advertisements, um, as people are you know, trying to describe what they have for sale and what's been imported or what is left behind, mostly, in the case of the occupation. Um, there's quite a bit in the occupation itself uh, where people are writing about things that have been stolen or destroyed. Um, there's, there's lots of theft. There's lots of plundering that's being done. Um, so people are looking for things that have been lost. There's a great deal of dislocation uh, as people are moved out of their houses, um, either by the British moving in or um, just because they see a, a chance to get into a better house that's been left empty. Businesses especially do this. If you have a business in a maybe not so great part of Philadelphia, farther from the river, say, um, once the occupation begins, you realize a number of these warehouses and storefronts along Front Street, close to the river, are empty now. And you will see people just pack up their wares move into this much better place on Front Street and set up shop during the occupation. And they will advertise in the newspapers, I've, I've moved to a much better place, come find me here. I'm still in the city. I'm still selling my stuff. Were they reporting on the war that was going on? Um, not, not to any great extent. So uh, newspapers then did not do that in the same way they did today. There's much less reporting. Um, it was more in the form of sort of copying um, things from other newspapers, especially in New York during the occupation. New York is still held by the British. So they have multiple loyalist papers there. Um, so they will have uh, news that comes over from Britain um, or just news of events happening in New York itself. And as those papers reach Philadelphia, they'll be reprinted by the presses in Philadelphia. But there's no, uh, there's no in-depth reporters being sent out to, to discover things. This is mostly official channels um, funneling reports the newspapers. You do say in one, at one point there was a, a report, I guess it was published in the newspapers, that Benjamin Franklin had died. Yes. <laughs> was there a lot of that where the British were planting stories just as propaganda that would show up in the newspapers? Um, there was lots of misinformation. Uh, it's sometimes hard to decide what is propaganda or what is just a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so yeah, there's lots of news about poor Benjamin Franklin, that, that he died, that he's given up on the war, that he's going to be arrested, that the French have turned him over to great, all of this, mm. you know, flows, flows across the Atlantic and is immediately reported. Um, the British are extremely reluctant to ever admit that something has gone wrong. Um, so the Battle of Saratoga is something they refuse to acknowledge if they possibly can. This is, of course, a great victory for the Americans, and the British will just deny it, deny it, deny it, until they simply can't deny it anymore, and everyone is aware of it. Um, the same is true of Americans' alliance with France. Again, the British will just absolutely deny that this is even possible until it's already done. And the same with the uh, eventual withdrawal from the city, the fact that Britain plans to leave the city behind. They, again, deny as long as they possibly can. So they, they're not willing to admit bad news if they can avoid it. I want to get back to the, you mentioned the Pennsylvania militia and the Allen family there, <clears throat> and they, uh, they do not acquit themselves well in your book. <laughs> no. um, you, you talk about the, as the British approached, the collapse of the Pennsylvania militia shocked some and infuriated others um, Elias Boudinot, an American commissary general, said, we have mustered from the whole state about 4,000 men who, as soon as a gun was fired within a quarter of a mile of them, would throw down their arms and run away worse than a company of Jersey women. Well, I'm not sure what's wrong with Jersey women, but <laughs> not necessarily a compliment. Yeah, I think we can assume that he did not mean that to be a compliment. Um, and of course, by then, there weren't 4,000 men left in the militia. Um, no, the, uh, the collapse of the militia um, is, is shocking in its extent, um, and as I, as I think, a, a real clear demonstration of how much the people of Pennsylvania were not really committed to this cause. Um, by this time, participation in the militia is mandatory. You will be severely fined if you do not um, enroll and practice and serve with the militia. Um, so lots of people do. Uh, when they try to call up troops before the occupation, they get about a 50% response rate from the militiamen. It's not great but it's, it's something. Once Howe invades Pennsylvania and uh, effectively breaks the coercive power of the government there, um, and which means they can't actually institute these fines effectively anymore, you see the militia begin to fall apart um, in drastic ways. Um, so Washington expects to get 4,000 men from Pennsylvania to help him fight Howe and, and stop um, him from taking the capital. Um, that number almost immediately drops down to a little over 2,000 who are actually able to serve. Um, and then as the months roll by, uh, it gets smaller and smaller. It's 1,200, I believe, by October. By January, it's down to less than 1,000. Um, and really, the low point happens in mid-February. Um, as you know, Howe has taken the capital, the British are really in control of that part of the state. The government is falling apart. Um, and more and more people say, I'm going home. I'm not going to fight this war if I don't have to. Um, so Washington has given the militia control of the area north of Philadelphia between Schoolkill and Delaware. He said, this is yours. You, you guard this area. And the Continental Army has the other side of the Schoolkill. Um, and in, by mid-February, the force that is in charge of all of that territory is about 60 men who are fit for duty. Um, and they are camped in a tavern. And then their commander, um, Lacey, uh, just admits, we cannot do anything. We have no power to control this area without more men. Where was Washington and the Continental Army while the British were ensconced in Philadelphia? Um, so Washington eventually settled on Valley Forge. So this is, of course, the Valley Forge winter, 77, 78. Um, so he's camped out there. Um, and it was a hard decision for him to eventually land at Valley Forge. Um, Washington's first idea was to take the army 
well back into Pennsylvania. It had been a hard campaign for him. He'd had to retreat from New York before. He'd lost to Brandywine. He says, we need to rebuild this army. Uh, the best way to do that is let's get back into the interior of Pennsylvania, far enough away that the British cannot launch a surprise assault and just wipe out the encampment. Um, so that's his initial plan, but when he proposes this, the civilian government, and especially the government of the state of Pennsylvania, says, you can't do that. The people in the Delaware Valley here in the southeast are not loyal to the revolution. If you remove the army, which is really the only coercive force we still have operating, um, they're just going to give up. The revolution is going to die in this half of Pennsylvania. Um, and so they argue back and forth. Their initial plan is to get Washington to just attack Philadelphia repeatedly until he can push Howe out. They are eventually convinced by the military that this isn't going to work. We cannot retake Philadelphia by force, at least not yet. Um, so Valley Forge becomes this compromise of we're going to be close enough to exert some power over the civilians in the area, far enough away that Howe is unlikely to be able to launch a surprise attack and get to us before we know he's coming. Um, so the army is mostly at Valley Forge and along the western um, bank of the Schuylkill trying to keep the British out of that land. They have some detachments at the Delaware and in New Jersey, but that's mostly where the army lands. Were there any, was there any kind of fighting? Did any of the Continental Army uh, attack any portion of Philadelphia or harass the British on the fringes? After the Battle of Germantown, um, there's very little in the way of any major engagement. Uh, the two armies are going to um, face off to the north of the city, but never actually run into each other in any major ways. They're both positioning, looking for a really advantageous moment. And eventually, they just both sort of give up and retreat back to their encampments. There'll be skirmishes along the Schuylkill um, and in New Jersey when the British are sending detachments over there to forge, um, but, uh, but very little in the way of a major battle once the British are firmly in control of the city. Uh, there will be fighting along the Delaware as the Royal Navy comes up and tries to open up the river so they can bring supplies to the army. Um, so uh, Fort Mercer, Fort Mifflin will have, have substantial battles between the Navy and the defenders there. Um, but as far as the two main armies actually colliding again, that's not going to happen for the rest of the occupation. Meanwhile, where was the Continental Congress? Um, on, on the run, <laughs> effectively. Um, so they're also going to pull back away from um, Philadelphia. Uh, the Continental Congress and the um, government of Pennsylvania are going to end up in York and Lancaster um, to wait out the occupation. Um, and then try to administer things as best they can from there, which is, is hard. It's less of a nexus um, than Philadelphia was. Uh, but they will continue to operate to the best of their ability, but from a distance with as much safety as they can muster and with the Continental Army effectively shielding them, lest Howe rush out to try to capture them. What was the uh, life like for a British soldier who was occupying? What did, what did they do day to day? Um, so it changes substantially, uh, really when the year changes, 77 to 78. Initially, the British will come into the city and they'll take it over. Um, and uh, things will be a difficult for the soldiers there. Um, they will have to find a place to live. It gets colder and colder as winter approaches. Um, they have trouble finding barracks for, for everybody. A number of officers are extremely insulted that they have to uh, live on the ships on the Delaware River rather than have nice cozy homes. They think, you know, we're, we're liberating these people from these tyrannical Americans. Shouldn't they let us, invite us into their homes? Um, so, so things are, are tight for a little while. Washington has the most success he will ever have in restricting the flow of supplies into Philadelphia there in the first few months of the occupation. Um, the British never go hungry, but um, things are not as plentiful as they are used to. 
by the time the new year rolls around, we get to 1778, the countryside has really opened up. Uh, the Washington's attempts to keep people from feeding Philadelphia are falling apart. The militia, notably, is just no longer a force to be reckoned with. Um, so there's lots of food now. The river has opened up, so supplies are coming in from Great Britain. And at this point, the soldiers are, are well-fed and comfortable and bored, effectively. You know, they are here to fight a war. Um, and as spring moves along in 1778, they begin to realize, you know, we're not marching out of the city. We're just staying here, as Howe has resigned his commission. They're waiting for a new commanding general from Britain. Uh, so they find things to do to pass the time. There's cockfighting and horse racing and gambling and dances and plays, and um, they live it up pretty well <laughs> through the spring of 78. Did the British quarter troops in people's houses? They did. Because that was one of the, the uh, provisions in the Declaration of Independence that the, uh, the patriots didn't like. Yes, and <laughs> they, uh, they were sensitive to that. Um, so yes, British officers mostly would be put in the houses of uh, civilians in the city. There just was not enough space um, really to put them anywhere else. They kept uh, regular soldiers mostly in barracks or in tents, um, as unpleasant as I'm sure that was in, in the middle of the winter. But officers could be lodged in the houses of the well-to-do. Um, they would take over parlors and bedrooms. Um, sometimes this worked out relatively well. Elizabeth Drinker really won the lottery there and had an officer who was annoying at times, but never a threat to her or her family. Um, others, it went much, much worse when the officers would destroy or, or steal stuff from them um, or bring um, mistresses into the house. So you have these Quaker women who have military officers with mistresses living in their house and are very upset about what's going on. Whose idea was it for the British to withdraw from Philadelphia? Um, so Britain uh, is in a difficult position by the summer of 1778. Uh, it's clear by then that they're going to be at war with France, um, which means that all of their possessions in the empire are now threatened. And most important for them, the Caribbean is, is under threat. The French will have a navy that can come down and take the Sugar Islands away from Britain. And that's really where their money is at. You know, America is important, but not as important as the money-making islands in the Caribbean are. Um, so the British ministry realizes uh, we cannot defend all of these sites at once. We cannot hold on to New York and Philadelphia and go defend the Caribbean at the same time. Something has to give. So the decision was made well up the ladder? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and so Philadelphia is the one that eventually gets sacrificed. They're going to pull those troops out. Some will go back to New York. Many will go down to the West Indies. Um, the Loyalists in Philadelphia are, of course, horrified by this. Uh, you see um, in Howe's writings that he both recognizes the necessity of it and feels that this is a horrible mistake. Um, Clinton, of course, is just aghast that he's been put in charge of this, this extremely awkward situation. Um, it's handled poorly in almost every way by the British ministry. They do not inform the people they should inform early enough. They leave the um, loyalists of all stripes feeling betrayed and, and insulted. Um, there is a peace commission that gets sent out just before the occupation ends to try to negotiate peace with the Americans. Uh, the ministry neglects to inform them that they are withdrawing from Philadelphia. Um, so the Carlisle Peace Commission arrives in Philadelphia uh, at this twin moment to say, we're here to negotiate peace. Also, we're surrendering your capital city back to you. This is not a great time to negotiate peace for them. Did they consider it surrendering the capital? I mean, was it, was it the moment when the British kind of threw in the towel and said, we're not going to win this war against the colonies? Um, I think it's probably the moment when they began to accept that they weren't going to win all the colonies back. 
um, once France is in the war and once the Carlisle Commission fails, which it, it does immediately once they, they arrive. Uh, Britain begins to realize getting all of the colonies back is certainly not going to happen in the short term, maybe not going to happen ever. Um, and then you see their strategy shift. They're going to defend the Caribbean from France, and they're going to send their army in America down to the south. And say, so, you know, so we've, we've lost New England. We've lost the middle colonies except New York City itself. Um, but maybe in the south, we can find loyalist support. We can rally support from slaves down there. Um, and even if we can just carve off the southern colonies and just keep them, they can feed the Caribbean where the real money is. And maybe we'll have a smaller American empire for a while, but we'll have something. You know, and if the war went well enough against France, maybe they could come back to the north in the future. But you really see Britain say, we're not going to try for anything north of Virginia for a while at least. So you said the loyalists were aghast when the British left. Oh, yes. What happened to them? Suddenly all the pro-revolution people pour into the city. Yeah. So many of them will leave with the British. Uh, they mm. will go back to New York um, and then either back to Britain or up to Canada to try to find some home in the empire. And these might be people who lived in Philadelphia for a long time. Yes. Yeah. So um, Joseph Galloway ends up out of the city for the rest of his life. Um, others are going to stay behind, um, either because they are just more attached to their homes than they are to the empire, or because they think maybe we can cut a deal with the Americans here. Um, and uh, kind of one of the stories at the end of the book and as we move toward the end of the war is that it works out better for both the loyalists and the disaffected than you might have suspected given how things were at the beginning. The patriots turn out to be more generous enemies at the end of the war than they do at the beginning. Um, you see the, even the sort of radical government of Pennsylvania uh, begin to recognize that once it seems like we won, Pennsylvania is, is relatively secure. We don't think the army is coming back. Maybe these disaffected people aren't a threat anymore. Maybe we don't have to push them as hard to voice consent for what we're doing. Uh, it's the shift from the people who want to overthrow the established power to people who are the established power. And if, if I'm in charge and you're quiet, then you effectively support me being in charge. Um, so they think, well, maybe these people will come around. Maybe we don't have to pressure them to swear allegiance to us anymore. Um, and yeah, there's much more leniency after the occupation is over than there is building up to it and during it. And were there loyalists who shifted their position and saw what side, uh, where, which way the wind was blowing and decided to support independence? Um, at, least, uh, at least rhetorically. Um, you certainly see loyalists who begin the occupation uh, with strong faith in Britain, that Britain is going to protect them and make things better, lose faith in Britain as the occupation moves along. Uh, and I would say slide toward being disaffected. You know, they still don't believe in the vision of an independent America, but they realize the king is no friend of theirs either. Um, by the time the British withdraw, again, people think this is over here. Britain is not coming back to Philadelphia after they leave this time. Um, and so they're certainly willing to mouth support for the revolutionaries that they wouldn't have before. They, there's nothing to be lost by it now. It's hard to gauge, of course, how sincere that really is. Um, but you do see people, see people switch over, swear that oath of allegiance now where they would not have before and try to get along. So there wasn't a lot of revenge and hanging of loyalists once the, the patriots came back into the city? Very little. I would say shockingly little. Um, certainly the laws were on the books that would have allowed this sort of bloody retribution, which is never carried out. Uh, the government will accuse, I think it's 640 people of high treason for their behavior mostly during the occupation. Um, of those, they will execute six, and not all of them are executed for political crimes. 
Uh, there is a law passed which says if these people who are accused of treason do not voluntarily surrender by a deadline and are then arrested or captured, uh, they're to be summarily executed without trial. So they're basically um, declared guilty of treason by legislative fiat. Um, of the 26 people who fall into that category, only one is actually killed. And again, the army kills him for an unrelated crime. Uh, the two most notable executions in Philadelphia are Quakers, uh, Abraham Carlyle and John Roberts are both executed. Um, and there is this immense outpouring of support, uh, not saying they're innocent, they clearly worked with the British Army, um, but saying that executing them is unnecessary and they should be given clemency. Um, and it, it stretches across the political spectrum, people who speak out on their behalf to say, you know, they were wrong, they should be punished, we don't need to kill them. Uh, when they are, in fact, executed, something like a quarter of the population of the city turns out to mourn them in a funeral procession. There's this, um, this great step back toward leniency and to say, let's, we've won. Let's try to unite people. Let's try to get along peacefully and quietly if we can now. What kind of shape was the city when the Patriots marched back in? Uh, not great. <laughs> so the, uh, the British in their sort of final month there become very, um, very casual with the destruction of property. They realize they're not going to stay. Um, so they're, they're willing to, to burn things down. Uh, they're very uh, free with their trash, including things like human waste and manure of just sort of piling it into the basements now. And willing to burn things down? Oh uh, yeah, so there's lots of burning throughout the city. Um, uh, things like fences and orchards, anything that can be used for firewood is, is constantly being taken. Howe tries to stop this. He issues proclamation after proclamation to protect people's property. He's mostly ignored. Um, so that happens in Philadelphia and the, the damage is left behind. People come back to the city and say, you know, I had this prize orchard, it's just gone now, it's been burned. Um, there is burning of other sorts outside the city as the British burn down houses either because they're afraid that the Patriots will use them as sniper nests or just they get really angry and start setting fires to city, uh, to towns outside Philadelphia. Did, did life go back to, to normal after the British left or, or was it kind of damaged goods for a long time to come? Um, things were damaged uh, for a time, but not the same way they were in, say, Boston after the British left. Boston uh, never really recovered uh, kind of the glory it had before the war began. Philadelphia will come back. Um, it will, again, become this largest city in the colonies. It will begin to be this major exporter of foods um, after the war is over, uh, back to Britain and to the rest of the world. It will take some time, um, but again, because there's, there's not as much punitive action taken against the, uh, the dissenters and the disaffected, things are able to pick up relatively quickly for being in a war zone. Was fighting for the Revolutionary War done at that point with, with, uh, all around Philadelphia? Did was there any more of the war that happened anywhere near Philadelphia? Um, so the British will withdraw. The Battle of Monmouth will happen over in New Jersey. Um, and there will be raids, um, again, especially in New Jersey. New York City is, is right there, of course. And the British will hold on to that. So there will be raids that happen um, all through New Jersey and up in New York. Uh, relatively little happens in Pennsylvania itself. Again, there's no more major armies moving in to fight a battle. That's going to happen now in the South as the war sort of moves into a third phase. It's the Southern Campaign for the British. What did you learn new by doing this book? Oh, um, really, the, uh, the entire premise was, was a surprise. I, uh, I knew I was going to write about the British occupation because it was just an interesting moment. Um, and so I started doing research um, and uh, began looking at how the people 
in Philadelphia were interpreted by the two sides. Um, and I didn't have any sense of, of disaffection or these people in the middle to start with. Uh, but I looked at Washington's writings and uh, Adams and Green, these continental um, and revolutionary uh, leaders, and saw that they were describing the people of the Delaware, Delaware Valley in very hostile terms. Um, Washington uh, talks about them acting most infamously, and uh, Washington describes Philadelphia as this mass of cowardice and Toryism. So um, they're constantly complaining about these people aren't supporting us. And I thought, oh, well, here's something. There's this depth of loyalism in Pennsylvania that no one knows about, and I can write about that. So I go to look at the British sources, Howe and James Grant and, and others, and think, well, they're going to talk about how much support they got from loyalists in Pennsylvania, but they don't. They are using the same hostile language and saying, you know, these, these people are, I think James Grant describes Pennsylvania as more inimical than any other colony he's been to. Um, Howe describes the people as in great enmity against him. Um, and I think, well, what's going on here? These are the same people at the same historical moment, but being described in very different ways by these two sides. Each side says, you guys are our enemies. And I think, oh, well, something's going on. <laughs> and so I've got to figure this out. Um, and the answer is that they're not on either side. They're, there's something else. Um, and the disaffected came out of that. Have you written books prior to this? No, I've, I've done some articles. I've done a, a chapter and another book. But this is my first book-length project. You got to take a crack at another one? I hope so. <laughs> I, would like to, I would like to write more about the drinkers. They are such a fantastic family. I would like to write about the Carlisle Peace Commission. I think people have not read enough about that. Um, but I haven't started it yet. Right now I'm, I'm really focused on this one. We've been speaking with Aaron Sullivan. He is the author of this book, The Disaffected, Britain's Occupation of Philadelphia During the American Revolution. Thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.